everybody. Chad from the Jumpman Podcast here. We have a very special guest, Mr. Stephen Applebaum from the website, the Super Mario Brothers Movie Archive. And uh, we're going to have a conversation today about the uh, 20th anniversary of this film. So, uh, Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's a nice morning. I've enjoyed my weekend. I've uh, been a big Super Mario Brothers 20th anniversary, and I'm happy to talk about the movie a little bit. Yeah, so uh, so let's just start off. If you have not watched uh, this movie, the uh, the Super Mario Bros, I guess, um, uh, can you give a brief rundown about the what the movie's about? Oh man, uh, yeah, sure. It's uh, obviously an adaptation of the video games, but it, it's a little a little twisted. I almost call it the Beetlejuice of adaptations. Um. You know, it follows Mario and Luigi, two Brooklyn plumbers, mm-hmm. and uh, Luigi ends up falling for a cute girl, Princess Daisy, and this girl is kidnapped by, you know, a couple of goons, and they follow her into what turns out to be a parallel dimension where dinosaurs did not go extinct, but evolved into intelligent, dangerous human beings. Right, and and and, and, and I, I can just say, like, this is kind of like a very literal adapta- uh, adaptation, uh, script-wise, of mm-hmm. like this video game that uh, made absolutely no sense. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They, they took a lot of cues from the games, but they, you know, twisted them into unusual ways that you might not immediately connect. But mm-hmm. the connections are there. Yeah, there, there is seemed to, seemingly a lot like uh, a. Just like a metric ton of references to the original video game. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm just gonna go to your website just to pull up some. <laughs> like, um, like the giant fish, uh, Big Bertha, is uh, is right. in the film as a giant. Uh, uh, what is her occupation in the film? She is a bouncer at the Boom Boom Bar, and somehow she winds up uh, like. There's this whole entire dance scene where she's dancing yeah. <laughs> with Mario. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, you know, she's been a character in the scripts for a long time. Uh, originally, she was a police officer. Mm. But uh, they turned her into a bouncer because I guess that made more sense to have her at the bar. They kind of rode around the bar since that was like the big musical number of the, the movie. Right, and there's a uh, and there's actually some some video on your site of some behind the scenes uh, stuff shot by I guess local news uh, that mm-hmm. kind of shows like behind the scenes uh, at that bar scene uh, that really was cut out of the movie. Right, yeah, you're talking about the Spike and Iggy rap scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Spike and Iggy played by Richard Edson and Fisher Stevens. Uh, brilliant actors they improvised a lot of their lines because uh you know the scripts were being changed every day and they just figured let's just write our own lines it'll make it easier for everyone um richard edson um he played uh spike and he wrote the a rap song for them to play in the Boom Boom Bar scene because he was actually a previous member of the band Sonic Youth, so he had some hmm. uh, musical history. So he he wrote this rap song and he presented it to the directors, and they actually played the 
they put a boom boom box down and they turned it on and they just started rapping and the directors are like we really like this we're gonna put it in the movie so um they were supposed to basically rap about how koopa is a fascist dictator and it's time to overthrow him and this basically went on while mario and luigi are ducking and weaving through uh the dancing uh dinosaur people who are performing the dactyl <laughs> Right, and, um, and it seems like, especially that dance scene, uh, this movie came out in, I think, 1993, and to me, looking back, it's so 90s. Yeah, yeah, the rap song would have only dated it a little more. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, let's talk about, like, um, so, progressing through the movie, uh, as we talked about, like, Mario and Luigi go into this parallel universe to save the princess Daisy and uh, mm-hmm. wind up being captured by uh Kupo, who's this fascist dictator and we get to see like very quickly um i think like all the amazing uh set design and really like like modded vehicles and a uh, different way of speaking that really brings uh this other world to life mm-hmm. like i think that was you know, one of the one of the, looking back that's got to be one of the movie's big strengths definitely definitely um you know Blade Runner is an obvious inspiration. Uh, David L. Snyder, he was the art director on Blade Runner. He ended up doing the production design for Super Mario Brothers. Mm. So they owe a lot towards that film. But, you know, in the original scripts, it was a little more cyberpunk mm. than uh, dystopian. Because, you know, the directors, Rocky Moore and Annabelle Jankel, they had previously directed the film Max Headroom. Mm. And that's kind of a sci fi dystopia cyberpunk film. So the scripts had a little bit more of that edge. It had uh, street hackers and like a a cyber network and virtual reality and that kind of thing. And that just didn't make the cut. They ended up just going with the neon and the flash and the prostitutes. Right. I wonder how that would have turned out. I mean, like, you know, 1993, they're still using mostly practical effects uh, mm-hmm. outside of like the, the dimension shifting uh, kind of particle effects. Right. Um, I wonder how that would have like what their plans were for that. Did anyone in the any of the interviews or the um, transcripts that you've read? Did anybody mention how what their plans were? Um, you know, uh, the their vision for the parallel world was mostly the same. I, I don't think they ever really intended to make it seem bigger. Mm. They made it as big as they possibly could because they they built the sets on a, an abandoned cement factory and was much bigger than a, a studio set could offer. So it was as much as they could do as far as the parallel world's visuals. Um, they did want to do more in our world. The, the climax of the film was supposed to be on the Brooklyn Bridge, mm. and they actually built a model Brooklyn Bridge and a model uh, Koopa figure to you know be on it. But that ended up being cut, and they transfer that to the little walkway scene at the end of the movie right so uh, at the end of the movie uh mario uh luigi i believe daisy as well and koopa have all been transported back to the real world where uh, mm-hmm. koopa has used his super scope de-evolution gun to reduce the uh the rival plumber guy uh, scapelli down right. to a monkey and uh and they sort of have they sort of have a um a, a climactic fight on a bridge that's like in retrospect it's like oddly reminiscent of uh you know where you first fight Koopa at the end of uh, Mario mm-hmm. Brothers uh, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, that was that walkway scene was definitely pulled from the original Super Mario Brothers. Well, the when Koopa is in the cement bucket that overhangs the main street, mm-hmm. that was taken from the Koopa clown car in Super Mario World. Now, when you say um, they made a they made a scale Brooklyn Legend scale uh, a miniature Koopa, uh, mm-hmm. was was he supposed to be uh, bigger? Like grander, like almost like uh, like Godzilla-like in comparison to the bridge. Because in the uh, when he's in the cement bucket, and turns into uh, a dinosaur. He's kind right. of maybe like twenty feet tall, possibly. Yeah, um, I would say. You know, do you remember the part where he first starts transforming and he still looks vaguely human-like? He has like a, a lizard face, and he's still wearing the leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was the original vision for the transformation. He would turn into that, but he would have a tail. He'd be like seven feet tall, vaguely T-Rex human, and he would just be jumping across the Brooklyn Bridge, and he'd have a Yoshi-esque tongue, which he would use to strangle Mario. Hmm. So the final transformation into a, a full-size T-Rex, that was a late addition. Right, and, and yet somehow still kind of uh, underwhelming. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, um, you know that that bucket scene that was filmed in one week. Uh, Rob Berman, who built the the different Koopa stages, he made all those uh, stages in within a week as well. Wow! So um, it, it was a last minute rewrite to do that ending because the original ending was too over budget; they couldn't make it work. Um, but we. Uh, the, the Koopa figure was designed by Patrick Totopoulos, who uh, who has done creature design for Stargate and the American remake of Godzilla. He's a mm. very well-known creature designer, and he directed one of the Underworld movies. Um, he, we have some of his original designs for those Koopa figures, and the final T-Rex figure, it basically looks like a smaller Godzilla. Hmm. That's amazing. So uh, let's let's talk about the budget for a second. On on uh, I think Wikipedia, the budget mm-hmm. estimated budget for this movie was around forty eight million. Right. And uh, it looks like it only grossed about uh, twenty million. Uh, that only takes into account the American intake. Obviously, mm. it was re- released worldwide, and it. You know, they don't really have any figures for how much it made in England and Sweden and all those places. Mm. But from who we've talked to, it, it pretty much broke even. It made a little extra, but it broke even. And, you know, that's all you can really hope for on a film like this. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, after reading a lot of um, the the articles on your site and watching some videos, it seemed it seemed that, like, you know, um, that this production was totally plagued, that it was one of those productions that just is insane for everybody on it. Mm-hmm. And everybody comes away with a lot of different stories, especially with uh, with daily rewrites. It seems like a like a budget could just spiral right out of control. Right. Well, one of the main issues was that they spent about $10 million before they even started shooting. Jeez. Um, they uh, originally had a very fantasy script. It was almost like a cross between The Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland, very close to the games. Hmm. Uh, 
this was back when they wanted Danny DeVito for Mario and Arnold Schwarzenegger for <laughs> Koopa. Wow. Uh, we actually have some concept artwork of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Koopa. It's very wicked. <laughs> it would have been, uh, you know, like a legend-esque movie um, or almost like Willow, something like that. I think it would have endured as a childhood favorite. Sure. Um they spent close to $10 million just working on that original fantasy production, only to have the original director, Greg Beeman, who is now best known for doing episodes of Smallville. Um, he left the production, and they, they scrambled. They, they wanted okay. a replacement director. So, uh, so was there, uh, how much film was shot? They didn't shoot any film. Okay. It, was, it was just getting the script and building sets and uh, concept designs. Um, they, they scrambled. They tried to get a replacement director. That's when they uh, talked to Harold Ramis, mm-hmm. uh, if you've seen articles about that. Um, a lot of people think that they approached him to do the sci-fi draft. No, they approached him to do the original fantasy script, which I think he would have done a wonderful job at. Mm-hmm. Uh, he declined, and it was like almost a year later, and they were forced to go with Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, who only agreed to do it if they completely threw everything out and started over. Wow. Um, they also spent probably $2 million to $5 million having the writer of Rain Man do a script. And it was just a, was it just a spec script, or did it actually get incorporated? Uh, it was a spec script. It, they really only hired him just so they could say, oh, we had an Academy <laughs> Award winning script writer working on our draft. Mm-hmm. And nobody liked it. Everyone we've talked to who has read it said it was essentially a Rain Man, but with <laughs> Mario characters. Jeez. Uh, it, it followed Mario and his mentally challenged brother Luigi on an <laughs> existential road trip. <laughs> what? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it, they they nicknamed it the Drain Man script. <laughs> wow, and what a movie that would have been! I'm, I'm <laughs> do you know why the original director uh, left? Um, you know, from what we've heard, he was probably actually let go mm. because uh, his film "Mom and Dad Save the World" had just come out. It's oh. a, a quirky little sci-fi film. It actually features. Uh, mushroom aliens who are kind of reminiscent of Goombas, mm-hmm. but uh, the producers of Super Mario Brothers had an advanced screening of this uh, of this um, film, and after they watched it, they're like, "Wow, this is not going to do well," and, and the movie didn't do well. So they're like, "We're not going to take a chance on this director," which is a real shame. But you know, yeah, I actually. I watched that movie as a kid, Mom and Dad Saved the World, and yeah, I, I, I had those feelings that, like, this is totally lackluster, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's funny how that happens in Hollywood, and everyone kind of uh, says it, like, uh, Jendi Tartatovsky, who just directed um, Hotel Transylvania, right? basically said, said what the director of Pootie Tang said, which is like, okay, guys, please, please spend money and see my movie, or else they won't ever let me do another one, <laughs> because you're a liability. Yeah. Hey, you only get one chance. You make one mistake, mm-hmm. then you're done. You... Yep. It's not good. So, uh, so let's see. 
I, I had so many questions I wanted to ask you because, uh, you know, rewatching this this uh, movie re- as an adult really made me feel like, wow, this is actually really amazing. And I can't believe I guess it was, you know, my my expectations going into the movie, like zero expectations as a kid. I came out like feeling very confused as to what I just saw. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think as an adult, I feel like, oh, wow, it's New York City 20 years ago. That's so cool to look back, <laughs> you know, and see like, um, man, like the uh, the dig site. From the beginning of the movie, like, Jane's Carousel is there in Dumbo right now. And that's so cool that they actually filmed there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I really feel like as a, as a sci-fi movie with no ties to any kind of video game, it right. really it really works. It's really strong. It's so, yeah. it's so strange to hear that there were so many rewrites. Yeah. Um, rewrites, it was, it was bad. Um, the... the Everyone like Bob Hoskins, Fiona Shaw, Dennis Hopper, they all signed on to act a script by, uh, let's see, um, by a particular writer. Yeah, particular writer. It was a, it was a very good script. It was actually probably the least connected, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was the best written. It was uh, by Dick Clement and Eden Lafrenai, who had written uh, Flushed Away and Across the Universe. Oh, I've, so, I've not seen either. <laughs> so, uh, everyone signed on to act for this particular script. Mm-hmm. So, they were signed on and they were going to come in in a few months. But the producers, they were like, oh, this this script, is, it's, it's not like the games, it's... It's too mature. It's too hard edge. It's not going to attract the kids. So they brought in Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe of uh, um, Men in Black and uh, oh man, what's that time travel movie with the two stoners? Oh, two stoners. I was immediately going to say Time Bandits, but uh, oh, no. oh, uh, oh, Bill and Ted. Yeah, Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Um, they brought in them to do a rewrite, and you know they they kind of cut things down. They made it simpler. Uh, mm-hmm. um, like they try to save effects the effects budget by having Yoshi reincorporated and having Koopa de-evolved into Yoshi, so they could use the same puppet. Oh, jeez. So it, it was a very happy Disney-esque script. It ended with a, a wedding scene where Mario marries his girlfriend Daniela and Luigi marries Daisy. And, you know, it was just kind of cheesy. But everyone came in like, you changed the script on us, but we're contractually ob- obligated to do this film, mm-hmm. but we're not going to be happy doing it. Right. It's, and uh, the directors and the actors, since they weren't happy doing it, they ended up just kind of ignoring the script and doing their own thing and trying to go back to the original script that they had all agreed on. And that's when they brought in the original writers, Parker Bennett and Terry Ronte, to basically do rewrites to make it work. That's so interesting. Wow. It's it's funny how just one, you know, in the, in the film business, like just one um, person can hold up an entire production. So when your right. actors kind of turn on you like that, you know, mm-hmm. they really hold a lot of power. Um, so... Let's see. I was going to say, oh, so uh, my brother, who sadly can't be with us today, really wanted to know. And and uh, I just saw this uh, video up on your site about John Leguizamo giving a 20th anniversary right, message. Right. <laughs> uh, and he, he briefly talked about uh, how he 
destroyed Bob Hoskins' hand during filming. Can, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I've read a little bit about the story, and I'm pretty sure it was during uh, one of the car chase scenes, and uh, John Lomazemo accidentally slams the car door on Bob Hoskins' hand, um, breaking his finger. So throughout most of the film, Bob Hoskins is actually wearing a hand cast that is painted pink. So that's why you don't really see his hand a lot because they try to keep it off off shot. And other times they try to digitally fuzz it out. Huh. Is it his right hand or his left hand? I believe it is his right hand. Damn. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's there, one, there were a lot of accidents on on stage. Oh, like what else? Um, if you watch the the greeting, I I believe John Leguizamo brings up the fact that someone was electrocuted. Oh, that's right. That's right. He yeah, one of the electricians was was being electrocuted, grabbed onto a hot cable, and another electrician had to kick him off of it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of accidents like that. There was one where they were filming the. The, the car chase with all the drivers and everything and uh, um, one of the drivers of the car accidentally spilled a soda on his lap which ignited a, a car fire that caught his lap on fire for some what? reason wait yeah. wait I mean soda let's uh, soda is sugar and water how does that start on fire I have no idea I guess there's an <laughs> electrical spark on, on the console and it was just like a, a little electrical spark oh so and they had to start that over, and they had already shot it like five times. Jeez, I mean that's that's crazy. I I guess maybe that's part of um part of the danger of shooting at a cement factory yeah. instead of on a studio. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, let's see. We had a few questions from uh from some of the our our maniacs, our listeners out there. Right. So uh, one of the questions was, uh, are there any scenes in the movie where you can clearly tell that an actor is drunk? <laughs> uh yeah i don't believe so obviously uh bob hoskins and john leguizamo have said that they they drank heavily during production <laughs> but at our screening event last friday we had a uh, parker bennett the writer mm-hmm. david l snyder production designer vincent guassini prosthetic makeups effects and chris woods digital effects supervisor and they all brought up that issue because one of the, our audience members asked about it. And they said, you know what? We never saw them drunk on stage. Maybe they got drunk when they were done after they had gone home. Mm-hmm. But they were always professional. They never drank during the filming itself. That's great. Well, that's good to, that's good to know. Um, let's see. Another question. Uh, so, uh, actually, let, let's before we get into that, let's talk about the ending of the film. Because I feel like the ending of this film... Uh, mm-hmm. Which I, I'm a big fan of the film. The ending is so cool. It, it's like the greatest setup for a sequel of all time. <laughs> right, you, right. You think everything's hunky dory. You know, Koopa's been defeated. Looks like democracy is coming to the uh, parallel universe, and uh, and our two heroes are kind of lounging back in Brooklyn, waiting for calls to come in. And then suddenly, Princess Daisy comes bursting in with a flamethrower, and she's like, "Guy, or what, what? What's that line that she says?" Uh, Mario Luigi. I need your help. You're never going to believe this. Right. And they all kind of exit together. And there's no, mm-hmm. there's no like specifics. It's just like, you're never going to believe this. And she's back in like, uh, she's back in like warrior princess mode, I guess. Right. Right. 
Um, you know, that that scene was the last-minute rewrite by Parker Bennett. What happened was, uh, in the original script, Daisy stayed behind in the parallel world, and mm. Luigi went home, and it just kind of ended on that, no, oh, they're not going to see each other again. And they felt that that, you know, the whole point of the movie was getting them together, and it just didn't feel right. So mm. they felt that to have a romantic, cohesive plot ending, they should bring them back together. And the most obvious way to do that was to, you know, rip off the ending of Back to the Future. Hmm. So they inserted that, you know, that Back to the Future esque, we need you to come back. There's a part two. Right. And, All right. There's something, something's wrong with your kids, Marty. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talked to Parker Bennett, we've interviewed him, and he said, you know, they didn't really have any idea that they were going to figure it out when they had to, and they just never had the opportunity. Got it. So, so uh, one of the questions from our listeners was, uh, so if there was a sequel, if there was a sequel, uh, who would you have personally preferred to see as the villain? Uh, Wart from, like, Super Mario Bros. 2 or mm-hmm. maybe Donkey Kong? Right. Well, um... Uh, for the last year and a half or so, we have been working with original writer Parker Bennett on a sequel comic project. Really? Uh, yes. Um, he was very passionate about the idea. He kind of passed the torch on to me and partner Ryan Haas, who also works on the website. But he discussed in detail the backstory for the movie, you know, you know, Mario and Luigi as kids, the parallel world before Koopa took over, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of laid out the basic story ideas for what would happen in the sequel. So the story ideas are his, but it is scripted by me and Ryan. And, you know, we announced the comic at our screening event last Friday. Mm-hmm. And the website is currently up right now at smbthecomic.com. We have the first four pages up, and we're going to try to get more pages up on a monthly basis. But the the story will see a new villain, and you know, I guess I could say, yeah, it is going to be Wart. Cool. Because yeah, that's that's amazing. So it's smbthecomic.com. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, I um, pers- personally, you know, I felt like the. Um, at the end of the movie, it's totally set up for Donkey Kong to be the the next villain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Scapelli turned into the the monkey. You mm-hmm. know, we kind of thought about that. We wanted to make it work. We talked to Parker, and it just seemed like you know that there just wasn't a lot you could do with Scapelli as Donkey Kong, because you know at the point of the end of the film, it just kind of draws you into the parallel world you want to focus on the parallel world more you don't want to stay in our world too much mm-hmm. so we just kind of move them into the parallel world immediately and we don't come back um it'd be nice to do a side story with Scapelli as donkey kong but he is not the focus of this sequel or the any story after that we're planning cool oh, that's that's very rational uh, of you um so so oh, I guess I guess one last thing before we wrap things up, um, I can definitely draw a parallel between uh, this movie, Super Mario Brothers, uh, the first let's say the first video game uh, film of all time, mm-hmm. and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Which was kind of like you know the first it's the highest grossing indie movie of all time, and it's kind of like the same era big comic book slash cartoon turned into mm-hmm. movies i mean uh what do you think about that well uh, a lot of people worked on 
Super Mario Brothers also worked on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, They were both filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, I believe they used a cement factory and a few scenes in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. Hmm. So I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was done right. That's that's a good adaptation. It, it was just so good. It, it was good for kids. It was good for adults. It just hit all audiences in the right way. And that's something Super Mario Brothers failed at. It just was totally inconsistent. Sometimes it's for kids. Sometimes it's for adults. Um, it would have been nice if they could have watched Team NT and taken cues from it and just you know had a little more cohesion tonally. Gotcha. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the um, the film's strengths are, and what do you think the the weaknesses of the film are? Uh, strengths definitely the acting. I would say the acting is brilliant. Uh, I wouldn't have chosen anyone other than Bob Hoskins as Mario. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people would disagree, but I think John Leguizamo did a great job as Luigi. He's goofy. He's sweet. Uh, I know for a fact that a lot of girls think he's cute. <laughs> so I think he really added something to the character that Nintendo is even struggling to do these days. They kind of make him into a, a scaredy cat, and I, I think that works for the games, but still lacks a little personality that John Leguizamo really brought to life. Um, you know, the set design, the creature design, very good. Um this was one of the last big creature films ever made before CGI really took over. Um, So the Goombas and Yoshi, uh, Koopa, they're all just really great dinosaur effects. Um, Weaknesses, I would say the script. Um, It's it's a good story, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a good story, but the the script really needed work, and you needed to have a real progression, and you needed to have a good climax. And I can't blame that on the writers. The writers did their best. You know, it's just a matter of the budget, and they had to cut things out. And they unfortunately cut out a lot of important things, a lot of backstory, a lot of character development. So yeah, uh, got it. So what- it has its strengths, it has its weaknesses. <laughs> But overall, I think it's it's an enjoyable film. I agree. I agree. The uh, so it's been it's been 20 years. This is the the 20th anniversary, and you have an event screening coming up. Yes. Yes. Uh, we actually had a 20th anniversary event last Friday in Los Angeles. Uh, went very well. Uh, we had a few special guests, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Jackson Jankel, Annabelle, and Rocky's son actually showed up. Mm. Uh, the director's son, he was ecstatic to be there. He he loved it. He just had a great time. Um, and we've also talked to Jack Hoskins, Bob Hoskins' son, and he loves the film too. Mm. So a lot of people really appreciate this film and what we're doing. And uh, um, Red Morton, uh, the sister of Jackson. Uh, she might be attending our New York screening, which is going to be next month. Um, we are holding two midnight screenings at the Landmark Sunshine on East Houston Street, New York, New York, on the 21st and 22nd of J- June. Awesome. And uh, I, will, I will tell you as a New Yorker, it's, it's actually pronounced Houston Street. 
Okay. <laughs> Which is like, it gets everybody. I have no idea why it's pronounced that way, but like, it's just one of those things. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what? I actually think I've read someone talk about that before. I'm like, that's really weird. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to call it Houston. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the world would be like, oh, yes, of course, Houston Street. <laughs> no, but really, I feel like they should just call it Zero Street because it's all, all the um, all the streets in Manhattan are numbered and there's this excellent numbered grid system that goes down to zero, and that's where Houston Street is. Right, right. So right. yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I definitely hope I can make it out. I mean, I have a like a a three month old kid that's preventing me mm-hmm. from doing anything late night. Right. But, um, right. Anyway, that's really exciting, and uh, we'll post that up on our Facebook wall. And once again, you can go to uh, you can check out all the awesome stuff that we've been mentioning and more at smbmovie.com. And um, is there anything we can expect besides the uh, the screening and the uh, that cool looking comic in the future? Um, yeah, we are working with Roland Joffe, one of the original producers of the film. He directed The Killing Fields, a very well known, highly acclaimed director. Uh, we've talked to him. We are trying to get a hold of the deleted scenes mm. to produce a remastered recut version of the film so if all goes well we will have that to screen at the 25th anniversary wow well i definitely look forward to that i mean even just seeing some of the some of the deleted scenes up on your site really makes you feel like wow there's just so much that was shot and so much more that you know to understand about this quirky movie Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, a good movie. Uh, I think it could really be improved with a few cuts, a few additions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I just think it should be recognized for what it is. And sometimes a recut is the best way. I mean, Blade Runner had a recut, and everyone loves that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When was your when when did you start? Uh, now we should, I probably should have led the, with this, but <laughs> what when did you start uh, being really involved in the the community and and the uh, site? You know, I loved the games as a kid. Um, you know, I was really into them. My mom knew that I was into them. She's like, oh, there's a movie. And she put it on for me. I, I would watch it as a kid. And, mm. you know, it didn't really feel like the games, but I recognized the names. Uh, it was fun. I loved it. And I actually hadn't watched it for like 20 years. And I, you know, I just started to do some research on it a couple of years ago. And I ended up finding a website, smbmovie.com, which was run by Ryan Haas. And it was just kind of a little archive of merchandise and, you know, different things he had collected over the years. And I'm like, you know what? This movie deserves something better. So I ended up contacting Mojo Nixon, who played Toad in the film, mm-hmm. and we interviewed him. And that just kind of kick-started the whole thing. We've been interviewing ever since for the last two years. So I just kind of came on as a head editor and an and uh, public relations, I, I set up all these screenings and things while Ryan Haas does the web maintenance. And, you know, I was just really interested and I thought this is something I could do for fun. Cool. Well, thanks so much uh, once again, Stephen, for being a guest and sharing all this knowledge with us today. And uh, everybody, once again, uh, check out the site smbmovie.com. Go check out the new comic. I'm excited to, to read at smbthecomic.com. And, yeah, if you're in New York on uh, on what days again? The 21st and the 22nd. Of June. 
correct. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, yeah, definitely uh, come on. And once again, we'll have that up on our website, jumpmanpodcast.com. All right, and uh, yeah, thanks again, Stephen, and uh, thanks for listening. No problem. Have a good day. Jumpman engaged. Yahoo! I find your lack of faith disturbing. One shall stand.